When God created mankind, He rooted us in His goodness. But no sooner had He done that than man found a way to contaminate the soil with sin. And then to add insult to injury, we uprooted ourselves from the good soil that God had planted us in. The story is in the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. That third chapter explains the uprooted mess that we find ourselves in. So if you turn with me in your Bibles, just a few pages in, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis is the book of beginnings. Chapters 1 and 2 are the story of the creation of the world and specifically of how God created mankind. But chapter 3 is almost like a curtain call. For in the first two chapters we have God coming on the scene and creating this world and creating mankind and there's celebration, there is excitement, there is freshness, there is anticipation. And then in chapter 3 is the story of man's failure. Now, we took what God had made and created and placed it in our, literally within our grasp and lost it all. It's the failure to realize the purpose for which we were created. It's the story of loss, the loss of innocence, the loss of relationship, the loss of life, the loss of God-given opportunities. You see, when God created this world and placed mankind in it, He gave mankind basically one responsibility. Listen to me, God is saying. Listen to me and believe. If you'll listen to me and if you'll trust me, then you'll be okay. And that's exactly where man blew it. Stopping, failing to listen to God and not trusting Him. Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 8 is what happens after man said, I'm not going to listen to God, and I'm not going to trust Him. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to trust myself. I'm going to trust the voices that were coming to me. As someone has observed, temptation is the night, and guilt is the morning. Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Speaking of Adam and Eve, those first two folks created... And the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? And my sermon outline is containing your bulletin uh, as an insert. encourage you, if you would, to follow along. First thing we see in verse 7 is that our roots, the roots of our lives, who we are, have been contaminated. The core problem that develops here that leads to the sin, God's judgment, the whole bit is unbelief. 
God came to them and gave them a directive. And then the devil showed up. And Satan said the exact opposite. And then they had a decision to make that we all of us have to make every time we face a temptation to sin. And that is, am I going to believe God or am I going to believe the lie that's being put in front of me? Who am I going to choose to believe? And they chose to believe the lie. And that set up everything else that came to them in life. I can't stress that enough. They chose to place their faith in someone and something else other than what God had told them. And that's what sets us up for sin and failure every time. We choose to place our faith somewhere other than where the Lord has told us to place our faith. And when they did that, the contamination of sin began. i got a plant here today. I'm going to illustrate how this process worked with them and with us. When they made the sin, they chose to believe the lie. And as they chose to believe the lie, they began to be contaminated. It was like they had pure soil. And they just started having stuff poured into that soil that contaminated them. Sin began to saturate into their lives. The disobedience saturated into their lives. The unbelief saturated into their lives. And as it began to saturate into them, the contamination began. Notice what it says, explaining or that contamination. It says their eyes were open. That's not saying that their physical eyes were open so they were seeing things for the first time. They were experientially seeing some things that they had not seen before. They were seeing evil. They were seeing and experiencing evil for the first time. And evil is disobedience to the Lord. And evil is what takes us away from the Lord. And evil is saying, God says, I want you to be this and I want you to do that. And evil is saying, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. Evil is choosing to believe anyone, anything over and opposed to what the Lord has told us. And so they saw evil for the first time because they saw what it meant to walk in disobedience to God and unbelief. Secondly, they saw bondage for the first time. As they move from this experience, they begin to experience bondage. What it meant to be in bondage, sin and unbelief always comes with bondage. And so they begin to see and experience bondage. Now, bondage is interesting. We are tempted to get into it, but it never promises itself to be what in reality it is. You see, bondage always initially presents itself as freedom. If you don't listen to God, if you stay away from His Word, if you do your own thing, you're going to walk in freedom. But in reality, it's not freedom, it's bondage. It's just bondage disguised as freedom. And so they saw evil for the first time. Their eyes were open to evil. Their eyes were open to bondage. And their eyes were open to separation. First of all, it was separation from God. We'll see this in more detail in a moment. But from the dawn of their creation, they had always known what it was to be in close proximity to God. They had known what it was to walk in perfect fellowship with God. And now they're going to experience separation from God. They're going to experience separation from each other. It is a separation that will become even more intensified as you move on with the story as their sons will clash and one will kill the other and then they will know separation from 
total harmony and love in the family. They will know separation from their son who was killed. They will know separation from their son Cain who perpetrates the murder of his brother Abel. They're going to know all kinds of levels of separation because sin and unbelief always brings separation at various places of our lives. They knew that separation. Temptation can never deliver on what it promises. It says that they knew that they were, verse 8, naked. The idea of the Hebrew word there, naked, means to be stripped of protective clothing, to be defenseless, and to be weak. It was more than just the idea that they looked at themselves and said, we don't have any clothes on. It was the idea that they realized that not only their physical bodies, but even more inside of them, they had been stripped of protection. They were now exposed to sin. They were now exposed to the judgment of God. They were now exposed to the rawness of temptation that could destroy their relationship with each other. They were defenseless. They had no way to defend themselves against anything as they stood there. And they were weak. And so what did they act to do? They act to cover it up. Now can you imagine if you'd have been there in the garden that day? Just imagine. You sort of a fly circling around in the garden, okay? These two folks, Adam and they they succumb to the temptation. They realize that they are in trouble. Now, God has not shown up at this point. God has not said a word at this point. But deep inside of them, they know that they have messed up. Now, go back to your childhood. Can you remember distinctly a time in your childhood when you disobeyed your parents and you knew you were in trouble. Your parent had not shown up yet. Your parent hadn't said a word to you yet. You hadn't gotten caught yet. But deep on the inside, that sick feeling was already gnawing away at you because you knew what was coming. Well, what do all of us naturally do? We move to the cover-up stage. We don't want to get caught And that is exactly what Adam and Eve did. They moved to the cover-up stage. But do you realize we never really cover anything up? We just make some pitiful attempt at covering it up. And so that's exactly what happens in the story here. And if you'd have been there in the garden that day, this is what you would have seen. You would have seen these two people start running to fig trees and grabbing leaves as fast as they could. And you're thinking, what in the world are they doing? And then... I don't know how they put the fig leaves together because I, you know, they must, must, must be extremely creative. Of course, when you're desperate, you're creative and do anything. But they're trying to, you know, stitch them together and cover themselves up. And then they get this loincloth, and we're not exactly sure how they got that either, but they put that up there. And so you walked up to them, and they're a combination of funny-looking loincloth and a bunch of leaves over themselves. Can you imagine how ridiculous that would have looked? I mean, God wouldn't have had to say anything. I, can't, I sort of wonder if the Lord didn't sort of chuckle to himself when he saw how ridiculous they looked. Could you imagine walking up to somebody and they got fig leaves sort of thrown around them and some cloth around them? And that's the way they stood. And yet, when you and I try to cover up our sin from God, that is exactly how ridiculous we end up looking. They experienced the cover-up, and the cover-up was an attempt to cover up pain in three areas of their life. Number one, emotional pain. 
Sin always brings with it emotional pain. We hurt on the inside. We hurt as individuals. Sin in a family hurts a family. There's that sense of loneliness, of isolation, of loss, emotional pain. Secondly, there is the pain that is spiritual in nature. We have damaged and lost our relationship with God and our standing with Him. And then there is physical pain. They literally, as they were trying to cover themselves up, experience pain physically. And there is the physical pain, the gnawing of it on the inside of us. We can't separate who we are emotionally and spiritually and physically one from the other. Whenever there's problem in one area, there's going to be problems in the other area. And whenever we sin, there are going to be repercussions in every part of our lives. And how we try to clothe ourselves today to cover up the pain and the shame. If I had to identify two areas in particular that I see in our culture today that are the easiest ones for us to fall into to try to cover up pain uh, and to try to cover up shame, the first would be anger. Because when I display anger, I'm saying I'm strong when deep on the inside I really feel weak. When I display anger, I'm trying to control the situation or control the people with my anger when down on the inside I feel all out of control. And so how many times do we mask what's going on inside of us with anger? Because anger communicates strength and control, trying to cover up the shame on the inside. The other is materialism. Getting stuff and having more stuff and displaying more stuff and wrapping more stuff around in my life. Uh, You know, Friday... It was interesting, a news app started going off, and a very prominent person uh, in the sports culture uh, had been caught in a sting op- operation down in Florida uh, doing some stuff that he shouldn't have done. And then it began to come out that other very, very wealthy men in the country had been caught in the same sting operation. And it just sort of speaks about the fact that we all try to cover up what we've done, but deep on the inside, there's that pain and there's that sense of shame that we've got when we get caught and where we have messed up. Here they are trying to clothe themselves, and the materialism looks good, and no matter how much money you have, we really can't cover it up. Now notice what happens next in verse 8. They get uprooted. It says, They heard the sound of of the Lord God in the garden. The word there, sound, means loud, crackling cry. In verse 9, we're showing what he's saying. He says, where are you? God comes into their situation. The scripture doesn't say this, but you sort of get the idea as you read through this that there was a habit, a normalcy of God coming to fellowship with them, of them walking with God. And that day they go and they hide and God steps in to that area and he begins to walk through that area. Now when it says garden here, it's not like some little small place in your backyard where you would plant some tomatoes and so forth. It was probably a very large area. And God walks into that area and they're not there. And God begins to call out to them. 
And the Hebrew language gives us the idea that he, that he didn't whisper it. His voice rang through that forest. Where are you? I want you to think about what was going on in the heart and mind of God. Where are you? Have you ever gotten, those of you that are parents or grandparents, have you ever gotten separated from your child and you didn't know where your child was or your grandchild was? The panic that you feel, the fear that you're overwhelmed with, where are you? Years ago when my son was, John was probably about, I don't know, first or second grade, we went down to North Carolina on vacation and we were at the beach. My son, from day one, never had any fear of the ocean which drove me nuts when we would go to the beach. He had no fear of waves, the ocean, etc. I pulled him out of the waves twice when we were in Nags Head. He just goes down there, and the, you know, before he knew it, the undertow would grab him, and down he goes, and I go drag him out. And the first time that happened to us at Nags Head, I thought, he's bound to have learned his lesson. We go back next year, and he just trottles right on back down into the surf, and happens all over again. So we were down at this particular time. We were down uh, not too far from Myrtle Beach, and Jonathan was out there on the water's edge. I turned my back for like a split second to look up on the shore. And when I turned back, he was gone. I couldn't see him anywhere. If you'd have put a blood pressure cuff on my arm, I'd have blown the thing right off. I mean, just like that, my blood pressure skyrocketed. I couldn't see him anywhere. I ran down into the surf, and I began to run up and down in the surf, kicking my feet, doing everything I could to try to figure out where he was. Helen was up on the shoreline. She saw the expression on my face. I didn't have to say anything. She came running down to the, to the beach, and, and I looked up at her and I said, I can't find Jonathan. I don't know what's happened to him. And she said to me, he's up on the beach right over there. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience as a parent, but there was half of me that wanted to hug him, and the other half of me was ready to kill him. You know, I just wanted to go up there and shake him real good and say, what did you do? And you just about scared the life out of me. But in those moments there, there was just sheer panic that was going through me of what has happened to my son. And when God walked into the garden that day, God knew why they were hiding from him. But God just, I think it just exploded out of him because the relationship that he had created them for, he had created them to be in a deep, continuous, awesome relationship, friendship with him. And he realized that day that was gone. The way back was going to be excruciatingly tough, even tougher for him than for them. And so God's voice echoes through the garden, where are you? I would imagine, I mean, he said it over and over again, where are you? Where are you? It is the, the voice of a broken heart. It is the yearning of a heart that loves them. Where are you? Verse 8, it says they heard the voice of the Lord God. The word there means to hear with attention. In other words, God got their attention. They were hearing. But they were hearing his voice like they had never heard it before. 
Because whereas they had always heard a voice of acceptance and love, this day they were hearing a voice of panic and heartbreak. Where are you? Because you see, this is what had happened. God is yelling out, where are you? Because he had planted them in his goodness, in a relationship with him. They had contaminated the soil with their sin. But in their act of hiding, they literally uprooted themselves. They left that place where God had created for them to live and to thrive. And now they were out of the container. They had placed themselves on their own. They had totally uprooted themselves. And if you take a plant and uproot a plant and lay it on the side, what is going to happen to that plant? That plant is going to die. It is going to shrivel up. It's going to die. It's not going to be able to get nutrients. It's not going to be able to get water. And you see, when we uproot ourselves in sin and we are on our own, what we just did is pull ourselves out of what God put us into and we're not going to be getting what we need from Him anymore. And so we start shriveling up and we start dying. And that's the reason sin always has such an ugly consequence in the long run. If you came back and looked at this plant tomorrow the end of the week, if I leave this plant out here all week long, it's not going to look like this at the end of the week. And see, that's sort of the deceptiveness of sin. Everything looks great right now with this plant because it just got pulled out. But tomorrow is not going to look too great. Wednesday is going to look even worse. By next Sunday, it's really going to be carrying it. And two weeks from now, it's going to be dead as a doornail. And that is exactly what sin does. It uproots us. And so we end up slowly, without even realizing it, begin to shrink in the power of sin. Notice who it says it came to them. It was the voice of who the Lord God. The word Lord there being the personal name of God, Yahweh. It speaks of God as the faithful partner. The one they could depend on. The one that wanted them. The one that created them to be his partner. When they heard his voice, they said, This is our creator and he created us to have a relationship. He created us to be in the container with him. And we pulled ourselves up. We pulled ourselves away. We lost our partner. And it's our fault. He is the voice of the Lord God. The term God there being the name of God, Elohim. It's the name that's used in Genesis 1 and 2. It's the God of creation. The God who is the almighty provider. God created them and he says, I'm going to provide for you in every aspect of your life. God walks in the garden that day and he says, where are you? And they're like, we have lost our faithful partner, but we've also walked away from the one who is the almighty provider in our lives. And you see, every time we don't trust God in an area of our life, we walk away from him as our provider. And so what do we do? We start taking over that part of our life. We start having anxiety attacks because we know that we're in control. He's not in control anymore. We know we're trying to provide for ourselves instead of letting God provide for us. And we're going to be in major trouble if we got to provide for ourselves and take care of ourselves in every part of our life. Oh, for a while we think we can sort of keep it going. But then after a while, it starts collapsing on us. We've walked away from the almighty provider. And how do we do that? We don't really want to bother with the Bible anymore. Because every time we read this book, 
it makes us feel uncomfortable. So the best thing to do is just close it and ignore it. So we keep our distance from the Bible. We start keeping our distance away from church. Because in our hearts, we don't really want to be around God's people. Because God's people make us feel uncomfortable. And they're talking about the Lord and serving the Lord, etc. And we don't really want to talk about the Lord and serve the Lord. So we stay away from that. We stay away from the place of prayer, the time of prayer. I'm in control. Why do I need to talk to God about anything? So I don't bother to pray. I'm going to get in your business for a moment here, okay? And I need you to hear me on this. We're starting a a marriage class uh, group next Saturday evening. One of the biggest mistakes that I see couples make is trying to do marriage without Jesus. That is about as stupid as you can get. But I, I noticed over the years that I've been a pastor, I'll see young couples that will get married and then they tell Jesus to go sit in the backyard and they'll call him when it's convenient to call him in. If you want your marriage to survive and thrive, but at the very least to survive, having him in the backyard ain't going to get it. He's got to be in the house. He's got to be at a prominent place at the table. He's got to be a part of everything you do in that marriage. And that's not just the case when you're in your 20s. You still need Him in your 30s. You still need Him in your 40s. You still need Him in your 50s. See, sometimes it's easy in marriage to get to a coasting place. You know, we're in this, and we've been in this for, you know, decades now, so we're in a coasting place. But you see, Jesus has got, the Lord's got so much more for us in marriage than just coasting and putting in an automatic, and I'm just going to stay here, you know, until we ride this thing out. He wants vitality and energy and enjoyment and getting better all the time. But part of that journey of getting better is keeping the purity in your life and the purity in your marriage and only being in the presence of God keeps the purity there. And when you and I decide we're going to blow it in the garden of our marriage, then everything else starts collapsing. Notice it says that he came down in the cool of the day. Now, I've always heard that explained that God came down in the evening when it was getting cool. And that may have been the case. But it's very interesting that the Hebrew word for cool is also can be translated wind or spirit. It's a symbol of the presence of God. And I'm not so sure what is not being said here is not so much a reference to what time of day God came. As to the idea that the presence of God was physically felt like a gentle breeze in the garden. And so this is sort of maybe the idea here. They're over there hiding. And they're hearing the voice of God in their ears. But they're also feeling the presence of God. As he blows, if you will, through the atmosphere. Not harshly, but gently. God likes to utilize all the senses for us to experience Him. And so they were hiding, but have you ever noticed 
you can't hide from the wind. I mean, if you're outside, you cannot hide from the wind. You can duck behind trees and get out on the ground, but that wind's going to catch up with you. And so they're there hiding, and that breeze perhaps is blowing around them. And they know they're in the presence of the Lord. Notice the verb that it says that they, verse 8, it says that they hid themselves among the trees of the garden. What God had made and created that was pleasant to look at and good to eat was the very place that they were hiding. They hid from God in the trees. How about if they had met God when he stepped in the garden and said, we sinned, we blew it, we disobeyed, and we need to ask your forgiveness, and we need to repent. Instead, they went and they hid. And they forced God into a trying to find them situation. They chose hiding over alienation. Hiding that led to alienation instead of repentance. And folks, what gets us in trouble when we sin is that we so often choose hiding over honesty. God, I sinned. I blew it. But what are some of the things that we hide in? Let me give you some ideas, but you I could put a big space in your notes so you can write down your own. Sometimes we like to hide in activity. We just stay busy all the time. It looks good to others. It looks good to us. Hopefully it looks good to God, so we'll just stay busy all the time. We hide in addictions. That way the addiction numbs out the pain and the addiction means we don't have to face reality. We hide in stuff. The more we can accumulate, the more we can have, the better it makes us feel and look. And I'm not so sure one of the greatest things that we don't hide our lives in today in our culture is noise. Noise. Just keep the noise going all the time. Because i got noise going all the time. I don't have to deal with anything in my life. The noise just drowns everything out. You know what God's doing with a lot of us? He is trying to get the noise out of our lives. So that He in the quiet, we will face Him and deal with. Verse 8, notice it talks about the presence of the Lord. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. That is the face of the Lord. In other words, they didn't want to look God eye to eye. God walked into the garden. Now, I want you to follow me on this. God walked into the garden that day. And he started calling out for him as he walked through the garden. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And he found them. And he confronted them. And then God told them, 
You've got to leave the garden. In fact, God said, I'm going to put an angel in this garden that's going to keep you from coming back in here. But I don't want you to miss this. They walked out of the garden and knew they couldn't go back in the garden. But God did not stay in the garden and say, I'm driving you out of this garden. Goodbye. So long. You blew it. I stay in the garden. You stay out of the garden. They walked out of the garden, but God followed them out of the garden. The rest of the Old Testament is the story of God following them and mankind out of the garden. Prophet after prophet, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Malachi, Habakkuk, you name them, are the messengers that God sent to His people to say, I'm still walking with you out of the garden. I walk with you with a broken heart. I walk with you with how you screw it up in your sin. But I am walking with you. You get to the end of the Old Testament. For 400 years, there's no prophet. They're called the 400 silent years. But what was God saying during the 400 years of silence? He was saying to them, I don't have to make noise to walk with you. I don't even have to have a prophet present to walk with you. Because I haven't given up on you. And even though I am silent, I am still walking with you. At the end of 400 years, a little baby is born in Bethlehem. And God is walking with us. In fact, He starts out crawling with us. And then He starts taking those first steps with us. And then He goes to walking with us. And for the next 33 and a half years, Jesus walks with people who turn their back on Him and don't want Him. And yet He walks with them and He walks to them and He says, I want to walk with you. And He walks with people who are sick and He heals their body. He walks with people who have died and He raises bodies from the dead. He walks with people whose lives are all messed up and He says, follow me and I'll change it. In fact, His invitation to walk is very simple. Follow me. Let's walk together. And at the end of 33 and a half years, he walks down this path in the city of Jerusalem called the Via Della Rosa. And there, at the end of his walk, they lay him on a cross. And he walks with our sin, and he walks with our shame, and he walks into our death, and he walks into our hell for three hours. He walks into all of that. Till he can't walk anymore. And they take him down off the cross. Because the walking has taken a toll on him. And killed him. But aren't you glad that's not the end of the story. And he didn't stop walking at the end of Good Friday. Because three days later. 
The angel came down and rolled the stone away, and he started walking again. And he's been walking for 2,000 years, and he's walking into our lives today, and he's saying to us, well, let you let me take your life, unrooted, separated from me, dying, and would you let me plant you? Would you let me plant you in my goodness, in my love, in me? Would you let me replant you? That's why the Bible says over and over again in the New Testament, we are in Christ. We are planted in Christ. In our roots that were contaminated, in our roots that were pulled out of His goodness, are now down in Jesus. Let's pray.